Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Dr. John Campbell graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College, University of Guelph, in 1985. After several years of rural veterinary practice, he returned to Guelph to complete a Doctor of Veterinary Science degree in Ruminant Health Management. He has worked as a clinical faculty member on the Ruminant Field Service Practice at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, University of Saskatchewan, since 1991. He served as department head of the Department of Large Animal Clinic Sciences from 2011 to 2017. His primary research interests are in the fields of beef cattle production medicine and disease surveillance in beef cattle. He currently acts as the director for the college's disease investigation unit. Today we are talking about your work with the Canadian Cow-Calf Surveillance Network and some of the key findings that have come out of this project. So I just want to welcome you to the podcast this morning, and I'm so thankful that you were able to take this time to meet with me. Well, thanks for having me here, Chantel. It's my pleasure. Before we jump into some of the information about the project, can you share a little bit about your history and background in agriculture and what led you to where you are today? Sure, I can start. I grew up in rural Ontario and ended up at the Ontario Veterinary College for my Doctor of Veterinary Medicine training, and after that, I left and practiced in rural parts of Ontario for a number of years before I ended up going back to Guelph to do my graduate work and residency training in ruminant herd medicine. And when I finished that in late 1991, I started a faculty position here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan told my wife we'd move to Saskatchewan for a couple of years, see if we like it or not. And 30 odd years later, we're still here and uh, it's home now. And what is your current position and what are some of the responsibilities you have in this role? So I'm a faculty member here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan and teaching veterinary students is a big part of my day-to-day job. I teach in all the years of the curriculum and focus mostly on ruminant medicine and herd health, but also some epidemiology and statistics and things like that. I was a field service clinician for many years, which meant taking final year veterinary students with me out on calls to local cattle operations and 
doing herd health work there, but now my clinical work has mostly shifted into coordinating our disease investigation unit, which helps to go look into unusual disease outbreaks in livestock around the province. It's funded by the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture. So I'm busy doing those sort of things. And then finally, I do research and extension work, mostly focus on beef cattle production and herd health. The disease investigation unit sounds like it would be very interesting to me. It is. It's a very interesting job. I really like it. Some of those investigations are really complicated and, and I don't necessarily do them all, but, but I get involved in a lot of them. Sometimes I use other faculty members because it's all livestock. So we do swine and poultry and all sorts of different things. So then I have to call in people from the college that are better at that than I am for sure. We do a number of things. Sometimes we go out and take students or graduate students with us and collect samples and investigate. Sometimes we just work with the local veterinarian to get some more diagnostic work done. And there's lots of times where it turns out to be a normal run-of-the-mill sort of bug that we're used to seeing in other situations. But occasionally we find new and unusual things that, that we've never seen before. So that's, that's what's really exciting about that And you mentioned before we started recording that you also have a podcast. Do you want to give a little bit of information about that for listeners too? Sure. It's the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. And as I was telling you before, I'm still a bit of a rookie at doing podcasts, but I get great guests. So that always saves it despite uh, my limitations. And got 40 odd episodes out there. We try to get one out every week or two and been mostly focused on beef cattle production in Canada, and I get nutritional people on as well as uh, veterinarians and veterinary researchers. So hopefully it's pretty practical for cow-calf producers. I'm excited to take a listen to it. And I'm really glad that you're switching roles today and you're here as our guest. Can you give me a bit of an overview of what the Canadian Cow-Calf Surveillance Network is and how this project came to be? Yeah, it goes back a ways now. Because originally the project was funded by BCRC and Saskatchewan Agriculture way back in 2013. And the BCRC had sort of made disease surveillance one of their research priorities. And so with their support and funding and the help of lots of my colleagues, we started this Western Canadian cow-calf network, which followed about 130 cow-calf herds across the three prairie provinces. We did that for five years and it went really well. We got some really good information and data out of that. And at its conclusion, BCRA, the Beef Cattle Research Council, asked us to carry on, but now to make it Canada-wide. So that was when we started the Canadian Cow-Calf Surveillance Network, or C3SN, and we launched it. What is the objective of this project? Well, it was... A threefold objective. We wanted to recruit a number of cow-calf herds all across Canada. So we started out with a goal of about 175 herds. We knew that we're going to lose herds along the way because people get busier and, and drop out. But but in, in the end, we wanted to start with about 175 herds, and they kind of provide us with a platform to get baseline information about the national beef cow-calf herd. So we get information on herd productivity management and welfare practices, biosecurity, all that sort of stuff through regular surveys. We got some biological samples 
from time to time that would tell us about production limiting diseases. And then we take that information hopefully and put that into meaningful and useful data that can be used in, in the future and other economic models or provide stakeholders baseline information that might affect their productivity or their efficiency. We're going to talk a little bit more about those herds in just a second. But before we go there, can you tell me who the researchers and collaborators are who are working together in this research? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Chantelle, because it's super important to know I'm not the only person doing this. It's a big team. Dr. Cheryl Waldner is one of my colleagues here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, and she was a key contributor to an awful lot of this work. She's an amazing researcher and been very involved in the beef industry for many years. And then in addition, we had faculty at three other veterinary colleges as sort of key collaborators that helped us recruit herds and do various parts of the projects. Dr. Claire Windair from the University of Calgary, Dr. Jessica Gordon, who was at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Marjolaine Rousseau from the University of Montreal. And then there were numerous other various faculty people, graduate students who always do them vast majority of the work and pulling data together and figuring things out. And I had an administrative assistant, Charlene April, who was an animal health technician that really ran the project from day to day and helped deal with keeping the producers online and, and doing all that sort of stuff. So it was a big team effort, lots of, lots of different people involved. You mentioned that there were about 175 herds involved in the project. How did that number change throughout the project? I think at the end, we had drifted down to the 130 range or something like that, maybe a little over 100. I think we had almost 160 herds for the vast majority of the project. But it's just one of those things where after a while, there's a bit of survey fatigue and things like that. We we had great producers. They're always amazing what they give us. And some of these producers had been in the Western Canadian thing. So they've been doing this for 10 years. So I think they can be forgiven if some of those eventually said, you know, I'm getting tired of doing this or I don't have time anymore. But it was really great. And we owe a lot to the local producers who participated as well as the local veterinarians who also helped collect samples for us and things like that. Can you tell me generally where those herds were located and what their involvement looked like? You've mentioned the surveys, but was there more than that? Yep. We had about 160 herds, I would say, if you sort of took the average number for the whole project. And that sort of mimicked the distribution of cows across Canada. We did overrepresent Ontario and Quebec a little bit because we wanted to sort of do those east-west comparisons because cow beef cows are managed somewhat differently in eastern Canada than they are in western Canada. So we had about eight herds in BC, about 48 in Alberta, 33 in Saskatchewan, 21 in Manitoba, 23 in Ontario, 22 in Quebec, and four in Atlantic Canada. So all across the country, all sorts of different management styles and herd sizes, et cetera. And fairly representative, I'm sure it's not perfectly representative, that the people that sign on to those kind of projects are probably tend to be better producers and a little better than average, I would expect, but but at least it gives us a window across the country into different management styles. And then we asked them to do a number of things. The first part was we wanted to collect their productivity data. 
So we wanted to know how many cows got pregnant and how many cows were turned out with the bulls or how many calves died, how many abortions did they know of, what percentage of the cows were open every year. So that was done in sort of two little shorter surveys every year that asked about those kind of details and basically were from their production records. And it was pretty basic production records. We didn't ask for lots of detail. And then on top of that, we asked them every year to fill out one survey that was on a management topic. So that might've been how they use antimicrobials in their herd and their attitudes about antimicrobial use and antimicrobial resistance. Another survey was on the topic of animal welfare practices and, and things like that. So there was usually some sort of theme to it and, and a survey that got sent out about those kind of details. And then the final component was every couple of years, we collected some biological samples from those herds. So that might have been blood from some cows at preg checking time or some fecal samples or some nasal swabs from some calves. And again, all of this is certainly up to the producer. If they didn't want to participate in a certain part, they could do that. That was It was certainly optional for them to say, oh, I can't do that this year or whatever. But we would get those samples and then uh, be able to analyze all sorts of things like antimicrobial resistance or presence of certain diseases, et cetera, in those herds, trace mineral levels, things like that. Then you've kind of already answered this question, but was there any other information being collected that you wanted to share? Not really. I, I think, I guess we had an original survey that kind of got their basic demographics of their herd, how big their herd was, what, when did they calve, those kind of things to sort of get an idea of what kind of herd they were and, you know, did they have purebred cattle, did they have commercial cattle, all those sort of things. So, so we had that at the start, but beyond that, we didn't really ask them, ask them for anything else. And how were those herds chosen? Were they picked or were they producers that offered to be a part of the network? Yeah, it's ideally, it would be love to have a perfectly random sample. That's what we want for research. But that's always impossible because people have to agree to participate. We can't force people to do these things. So at the end of the day, you always end up with a sample that's a little bit biased because they've chosen to participate. So we recruited in a number of ways. We recruited through social media, obviously, and things like that. But we also recruited through local vet clinics and asked them to identify herds that might be willing to participate. And then the producers would contact us and we would give them the information of what was going to be involved and what their responsibilities were. And again, everything was optional. If they didn't want to do it anymore, they could easily drop out. Uh, That was completely up to them. And we had people sign on and, and I'm always amazed at the willingness of producers to do those sort of things for us because they're busy people and they have lots going on, but we had fantastic people involved. We owe a lot to them for, for being part of this project. We paid them a small honorarium, uh, but it probably doesn't make up for that extra work they have to do sometimes. And what are the benefits of having a national network? Well, I think we kind of talked about it, but but it just helps us identify regional differences in an industry that's pretty diverse. The beef industry has a lot of different management styles and different concerns across the country. So we can identify 
perhaps early calving herds have different animal health issues than late calving herds, or maybe herds in Eastern Canada have different trace mineral issues than herds in Western Canada. So I think that really helps to identify those regional differences because the beef industry is not like, I would say some of the other livestock industries like dairy and poultry or swine are a little more uniform no matter where they're located. Maybe there's probably some differences and I'm just not as familiar with them, but but there's definitely major differences in the beef industry as you move across the country. That's for sure. And I think even in like pockets of the same area, I know like in our area here, there's lots of guys that are January, February calvers, and there's lots of the April, May calvers. There's a few fall calvers. So there's a lot of very different management styles. Exactly. Everybody thinks the cow calf industry is fairly simplistic in some ways, you know, it's not a really complicated system. But when you start looking into it and you start asking people questions about, let's let's just talk about uh, pregnancy rates or calf death loss. And then they come back and you've sent them this little survey and they say, well, I've got this group of cows and they calve in the fall and this group of cows calve in the spring. Do you want to know about both or just one of them? And, and I split my herd this way and this herd, the commercial cows get managed this way and purebred cows get managed that way. And they have different calving times. And. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, how do I figure all this out anymore? So, yeah, you're exactly right. And I was thinking that just as I was speaking about that previously, that that even within the province, there's huge variations in, in management cells. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to kind of sit down and chat with producers, too, and find out what's working for some people and why is that different than what's working for others when they might be right across the fence. Yeah, it's it's very true that so many of our recommendations have to be very herd specific because what works in one place may not work in another. Yeah, that's for sure. Were there any surprises or unanticipated outcomes of this project? Yeah, I'm not sure we were completely overwhelmed or surprised by anything. One of the probably most interesting things we found, and we had found it in the previous uh, Western Canadian survey, was that there's a high percentage of cows in the country deficient in copper. And that's across all of Western Canada and and even parts of Eastern Canada, uh, which always surprises me a little bit. And these are, as I said earlier, these are probably better than average managed herds. And still, the vast majority of herds had at least one cow that was deficient in copper. And I think in the 2019 sample, almost 30% of the cows in Western Canada at least were deficient in copper. So fairly high rates of copper deficiency, which which is always surprising, I guess, uh, to some extent. We haven't had a lot of conversations about copper deficiency. And that was one of the big topics when I was talking to Brenda earlier in her episode was that there was that copper deficiency was something that was coming up in their research as well. Yeah, it's related to lots of different things. So it obviously can affect reproduction and fertility. And as part of my disease investigation, you know, I've gone to some herds that have had severe copper deficiency and as a result ended up with very poor fertility rates, but it can also impact immunity. And one of the things that seems to show up when there's copper deficiency is more parasitism. I don't know about the external parasites so much, but certainly internal parasites become more of an issue and then maybe other infections as well and other infectious diseases. 
So it's an important thing. We can give too much copper, so we can cause copper toxicity as well. So it's important to recognize that. But overall, in all of our studies, we've shown that copper deficiency is by far and away the most important trace mineral deficiency we have in, in beef herds in Canada. Interesting. I know it's something I'm going to have to chat more with my husband about and see if that's something that we can get our cows looked at. Yeah, and wow. it's easy to test. I was just out doing liver biopsies on some cows yesterday. You don't have to do liver biopsies. That's probably the gold standard test, but even even a blood sample will give you some information about copper levels in your herd. And we use blood samples for most of our studies in, in the uh, project. But it's something I'm trying to recommend more producers do because I, even if you test your feeds and you're feeding mineral and you're trying to balance all that stuff, thing all those things out very difficult to figure out well if we have high molybdenum soil and you have some sulfates in our water what's the level of copper we need to feed so you can test your cows and figure out where you're at and then adjust things and see how it goes from there can you share any trends or key takeaways that you've seen in benchmarking productivity yeah it's tough to keep that really short, but we looked at a number of things. And I guess the big key takeaway is that we want to establish target goals that are useful for producers to say, hey, I know that I can compare my operation to what's out there, the average or whatever in Canada or Western Canada, and say, hey, if I reach these goals, I'm, I'm doing okay. And so non-pregnancy rates, when we look at that, it was like how many cows are open at preg checking time? Well, at the top 25% of herds, they were all 10% cows open or less, right? That, that's sort of a good goal. If you want to be in the top 25%, you should have 90% pregnancy rates. A little bit higher open rates in heifers, about 14%. Abortion rates should be around 2 to 3%. That's fairly consistent across the studies. We shouldn't have any higher than that. If you look at death of calves from that little window from birth to 24 hours, that's maybe 3.4%. So 25% of herds are less than that. If you look at 24 hours to weaning, we kind of separated cows and heifers there, but looking at calf death rate there, that's maybe 5% for cows, 8% for heifers. So uh, it should be less than that if you're in the top 25%. And calving assistance, the top 25% of herds uh, help less than 2.3% of their cows or 10.8% of their heifers with hard pulls. So it just gives us some background information. It's kind of like scorekeeping in golf. You've got to keep score to get your game better. And hopefully this gives us some numbers that we can be pretty confident in. We've got pretty good data on it. It's not a survey we've asked them to remember from two years ago or a year ago what their data was. We're collecting that every year from them right at the appropriate time. So I think we have pretty reasonable numbers on some of those things that gives us some idea of, okay, what are the target goals we should meet for productivity? nice as a producer to know that there's some of those benchmarks in place. I know as crop producers, it's pretty easy to find some of those benchmarks, but with the cow-calf sector, I think like we've said before, it's just so diverse that 
getting some of those numbers previous to this were pretty tricky. Yeah. And I think it's easy to say, well, here's what the average was or something like that. But the other thing that's nice with this is we can look at how wide is the spread, right? Like where, how bad is it to how good is it across these herds and where do the herds fall in between? So that, that's the nice part about that as well. And we can break it down into smaller groups, like looking at the cows that calve in late spring, early summer versus the cows that calve in January, February, things like that. So you can get quite complicated in the analysis. Can't break it down too far because we've only got 150, 160 herds here, but we can make some of those breakdowns and look at east versus west and things like that as well. And the information that's available to producers, is that breakdown also available or is it more generalized over the whole herd group? At this point, it's more generalized. We're still finishing up the final productivity paper, which is kind of the five-year summary of all that work. And that should be published soon. And I expect when we get that done, we'll probably work with BCRC to make a more detailed extension website or brochure or something for cow-calf producers so that they can access that easily without having to go read the scientific paper. In your recently published article, which was titled Update on Copper and Selenium in Cow-Calf Herds, Regional Differences and Estimation of Serum Reference Values, what is the impact of insufficient trace minerals and how can producers address this issue? So we've kind of talked about this a little bit already, Chantel. I think we looked at copper, selenium, and molybdenum in that paper. Copper was by far and away the number one deficiency. Selenium is more important as a deficiency in Eastern Canada than it is in Western Canada, but it's a much smaller percentage of cows that were selenium deficient in our study. We also looked at molybdenum because molybdenum can tie up copper. So if you have high molybdenum areas, we see often lower copper levels. So we looked at that as well. We didn't necessarily measure the impact in the study. This was kind of just getting baseline levels of cows. We also looked at weaned calves in one of our studies and looked at it there as well and could show similar results to what we found in the mature cows that copper is still the most important trace mineral deficiency that we see. There are a number of studies that have been done over the years that have looked at the impact of copper on fertility and and health and other things like that. So there are some of that data out there and there's continuing to be other research projects on, on that. I expect because of some of the results we found, we're going to focus on that a little bit more too in the next few years and perhaps do some more clinical trial work or more detailed studies that we can do on our research farms to explore those issues more. So what we know about the impact is that yeah, they have an impact, especially on fertility, especially on immunity and how animals respond to vaccines and things like that. One of the things that I'm hypothesizing, and I don't know this for sure, but as the beef industry has changed over the last 30 years, one of the biggest changes has been we've tried to extend the grazing season in a variety of fashions. We've used bale grazing, swath grazing, stockpile forages, whatever that may be. And as a result, we're asking those cows to utilize free choice mineral for a much greater part of the year. Used to be when I first came to Saskatchewan, the vast majority of herds I went to, they brought their cows in November and started feeding them in a trough or in the pen. And they were maybe even giving them 
force-fed mineral at that point rather than just relying on free choice. And we know that cows don't always consume free choice mineral. Some cows do, some cows don't. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard to drive that mineral consumption. And I think we need to really think about that issue and how can we drive mineral consumption in cows? How can we maintain adequate levels? Maybe without being able to force feed because that may be a fact of life these days. And then finally, how can we monitor that? And so that's been one of my big recommendations going forward is that we should be monitoring the trace mineral status in our herds. We can do that with blood samples or liver biopsies. Your local vet can take samples from a few cows. You could sample cows that maybe are have died for other reasons or something like that and get a liver sample from those cows. There are a variety of ways of doing it. But I think it's important because then you can get a picture of where you are and then adjust your trace mineral supplementation as a result of getting that picture. We graze most of the year, whether it's pasture or now they're out on standing corn. Is there the potential for, I'm thinking like a human vitamin, but that's a slow release that you could give your cattle when you bring them in to preg check that would then release some of those minerals so that if they're not consuming the free choice mineral they're still getting those yes we just got a product approved in canada that is an injectable trace mineral product and it's got a you know slow release so it's gonna release that product over a period of time and so that's really great we we've been bringing it in from the u.s for a few years in some situations on an emergency drug release to try to try to utilize that product because we didn't have anything quite like that. There was a trace mineral bolus at one time. I don't think it's still being marketed anymore. So we do have some products like that. Maybe there'll be more in the future. I would be reluctant to give my cows that product until I knew where their status was because I don't, you can overdose copper. It's, it's something we can kill animals with copper toxicity or, or perhaps their selenium levels are high and by giving this multi-trace mineral project product that has copper and selenium in it, you could fix their copper, but make their selenium too high. So I would be inclined to sort of say, I need to get an idea of this before, before I give it. Uh, so I'd still be inclined to test a few of my cows to get an idea where my herd was. But it is an option that we have now and, and it's a great option because it probably restores some of those mineral levels a little bit faster than, than oral supplementation and uh, it avoids the rumen and some of those things. So it avoids those issues of trying to get cows to eat free choice mineral. And if you sample a few cows in your herd, will that be fairly indicative of what your whole herd status is as far as trace minerals go? Yeah, it all depends on who you sample, I guess. Uh, you don't want to just sample the worst cows or the best cows or things like that. That's the maybe the one downside of looking for dead animals to sample because they may not be representative of the entire herd, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how many do you need to do? And I guess that's hard to say, but I expect you need to do five to 10, maybe somewhere in that ballpark, depending on the size of your herd to get an idea. It might be good to have a couple different age groups represented in there. So second calvers, heifers, and mature cows sort of so that you get an idea of 
there's differences across the different groups. Switching gears just a little bit, with respect to the prevalence of production-limiting diseases in Canada, what are the most common or biggest threats to production? Well, we didn't look at every production-limiting disease. We're a little limited because we're often relying on blood samples, and there's only certain diseases that we can utilize to check antibody levels on to really know that a disease is present or absent. But one of the important diseases that has been plaguing us for a while in the beef industry is Yoni's disease. It's certainly been a bigger problem in the dairy industry, but we've been aware of it in the beef industry as well. And for purebred producers, if they're trying to sell genetic stock and they have Yoni's disease in their herd, it's a bit of a dilemma of how I can deal with that disease. It's a tough disease to deal with. It's hard to eliminate. Uh, it takes a lot of testing and and effort to try to control the disease in your herd. So I would say it's an important production limit disease that we were able to look at because there are some tests that we can use for that. When we looked at it, it's it's still a relatively low-level disease in Canada. Whether it's growing or not is maybe a bit debatable. The levels were fairly similar to what we found in our Western Canadian study. Only about 1% of the beef cows we tested in our study, so it would have been several thousand cows from all these herds across Canada, were positive. So that seems fairly low, only 1%. However, the percentage of positive herds, which might be a more important number, how many of the herds were positive, that ranged from you know, 5% at the low level to as high as 18% at the high level, depending on which test we used. And the tests don't work perfectly. So that's the dilemma with the this disease and why it's somewhat hard to control is that the tests are somewhat inaccurate. So we know that it's still at a fairly low level in, our, in, in beef cows in general, but there's getting to be a significant number of herds that have this disease present. The big thing that we figured out, Paisley Johnson was one of our graduate students who was working with Dr. Waldner and her group, and they did some really amazing work in this, comparing the different diagnostic tests. And they showed that we have two tests, basically, in Canada. We have a fecal test that we can use, and we have a blood test. And they showed that the fecal test was probably a lot more accurate and better at detecting positive animals when compared to the blood test which is really new information in some ways for us. It's not, maybe not entirely new. There was other people that were coming to those same conclusions a few years ago, but not in beef cattle. And there hasn't been much work done in beef cattle. So we showed that that's true for beef cattle as well. And that fecal PCR test is probably a more accurate way of evaluating a herd and probably going to do a better job of trying to eliminate it from your herd than the blood test. So that's pretty important information. Paisley and Dr. Waldner and others took that information and built a computer modeling system that allows us to play with a fictitious cow-calf herd and that has Yoni's disease and try different testing strategies and see which one works the best at trying to get rid of that disease from the herd. So I think that's really going to be useful information for veterinarians going forward to give recommendations about dealing with Yoni's disease in the herd. 
We looked at a few other things like bovine mycosis virus. It's probably not the most important production limiting disease. It's a disease that we see more again in dairy cows. It's less important in beef cows. It has some export importance and things like that. Found that in about 5% of the cows that we tested overall, about a quarter of the herds had leukosis present in the herd. Interesting, it was a lot higher in Eastern Canada than in Western Canada. It's a dairy disease, so maybe because they're closer to more dairy cows than some of our Western herds are, maybe that's why we see that, but who knows that for sure. Again, it's a virus that can cause, can cause disease, but just because you have the virus doesn't mean you're going to have clinical disease. So a lot of these cows will live out their life with bovine leukosis virus and you'd never know it. So it's maybe not the most important disease. We looked for BVD, which is a really important economic disease in Canada. Most producers are probably vaccinating their cows for that. And we found out that they're doing a pretty good job because we only found it in about 0.2% of the wean calves that were positive. About every two and every thousand calves were positive. So that's much lower than we used to see. Only about 3% of the herds had calves with active BVD infections. The last bug we looked for was leptospirosis. It's a cause of abortion. It's a bacterial disease. Again, we can vaccinate for it. But we tested wean calves because we know they probably haven't been vaccinated for leptospirosis, so the titer doesn't confuse our results. Again, a very small proportion of calves, about 1% of calves, had, had been exposed to leptospirosis. And so it's not a huge problem in the beef industry. It's relatively small. We probably can help fine-tune our vaccination recommendations on the basis of some of those issues. Do you mind just kind of giving an overview of what Yoni's is and describing how it spreads and the problems that it causes in cows, just as being one of the most prevalent ones that you found in the study? Sure. Yoni's disease is a bacterial disease. It's caused by a bacteria we call Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, which is a mouthful, so we call it MAP. So MAP is a chronic infection that we have no treatment for. Once the cow is infected, she's infected for life. There's no effective therapy for the disease. They're usually infected as a young calf. So the, the vast majority of animals are infected shortly after birth or in their first few months of life. They can become infected later in life, but that's a more difficult proposition. They probably need a bigger dose of the bacteria to get infected later in life. Even though they're infected at a very young age, it's a very slow growing bacteria, a very chronic disease. So they may not show clinical signs till they're three, four or five years of age. And the clinical signs are really obvious and almost easy to diagnose. We see two things. We see a cow with weight loss and chronic diarrhea. And that chronic diarrhea doesn't really completely go away. They continue to lose weight loss. As I said, we can't treat it. So eventually those animals exit the herd because they're just losing weight and they're not doing well. We sometimes have to euthanize them or do other things because of their poor body condition. I think that's the main part of Yoni's disease. The challenge is that because it's got this long incubation period, these cows are in your herd 
they look normal, they don't have any clinical signs, but they're already shedding the bacteria to their calf and to other calves around them, et cetera. So it can be a very difficult kind of this silent disease until it starts to show up in clinical cases. And by that time, they've already been in your herd for a while, shedding it and spreading it to other animals. And then on top of that, the tests we have don't work terribly well they're not perfect for sure. They're not going to find all the positive animals. That's the big thing. So when you test the herd, yeah, you'll find some positives, but you're probably always leaving a few positives behind. If you tested the animals and then called the positive ones, there's probably still some positive ones there that just aren't testing positive yet. That makes it super hard to manage. Yeah. And to further complicate it, it can survive in the environment for a fairly long time. And, you know, so it, it's a very resistant organism to sort of environmental degradation. So on top of that, it can make it even, even more tougher. So it is a challenging disease. And if you suspect you have it, you should have a conversation with your veterinarian because it's, it's a bit of a challenge in getting on top of it. And obviously, you know, in some herds and some commercial herds, that may not be a huge issue. You might have the odd cow get sick or whatever, but in a purebred herd, we don't want to be spreading this to other herds if we can help it. And so that's the big dilemma in, in seed stock herds. We'd really like to limit the percentage of those herds that have it so we don't spread it around the countryside. Oh, that's what I was just thinking. You go down a whole rabbit hole of if I have this calf and I sell it to this person and then that cow calves and they sell the exactly. calf to this person and, and super hard to trace too if you don't, if you have a healthy looking animal that is shedding that virus. Right. Makes it super hard. What strategies do you recommend to producers to manage disease pressures on their farms? Well, that's really all about biosecurity and, and they can talk to their veterinarian about some of those issues as well. Part of that is your vaccine program. And so having an appropriate vaccination strategy that's appropriate for your farm and your situation, your geographic area, that's, that's a very important part of it. The other big issue is having animals move on to your farm from other sources and where do they come from? One of my colleagues talks about the witness protection program for cows, right? Where when you buy something from the auction market, who knows where it came from sometimes, right? So you don't know the vaccine history. You don't know whether they've had yonis on their farm. You don't know, you know very little about those animals. And so minimizing those kind of purchases, buying your animals from a known source where you have some idea about their disease issues and their, their infection levels, et cetera, having a good vaccination program, doing things like that. So those are the big ones. There's probably other things that we could talk about with biosecurity. In fact, one of the surveys, the final surveys was, was on some of those issues. And, and we did some biosecurity work in the previous Western Canadian one and and there's some good stuff out about that on the BCRC website and other places you can take a look there. Can you share some of your findings from another recent publication, which was titled Producer Attitudes Regarding Antimicrobial Use and Resistance in Canadian Cow-Calf Herds? And how do these perspectives differ from the general public perception? Well, this was an important study, and Jace Fawson was the graduate student that did a lot of this work with Dr. Waldner again, and they did some really neat work. One of the things they wanted to look at was 
have we changed how we use antimicrobials since 2018? And if you remember in 2018, well, not 2018, I guess might have been a little bit after that. Can't remember the exact date. We changed how antimicrobials could be purchased in Canada for, for livestock. And you had to buy all your antimicrobials with a veterinary prescription at that point. Prior to that, you could have bought some antimicrobials from the local feed mill or someplace like that and, and brought them into your herd and use them without veterinary oversight. But now there's veterinary oversight on that. So that was one of the questions. And they showed that, no, it really hasn't changed at all, that veterinarians are overseeing those antimicrobial prescriptions now. And it really hasn't changed antimicrobial use in cow-calf herds, that they're using them quite the same. And it's remained relatively unchanged since then. They looked at the reasons why producers were using antimicrobials. So we were asking asking our participants to tell us who they treated and why they treated them. And it wasn't terribly surprising. The three major reasons for using antimicrobials in cow-calf herds are respiratory diseases in calves, calf diarrhea, and lameness in adults. So foot rot probably primarily. So those three areas were the number one reasons that producers used antimicrobials. But what's interesting is that cow-calf herds in general tend to use relatively small amounts of antimicrobials because most of our herds treat less than 5% of our animals for any of those reasons. So the cow-calf industry especially are not big users of antimicrobials overall. And as a result, when we look at antimicrobial resistance in the fecal samples and the nasal swabs, the levels are pretty low. We don't see a lot of resistance, but we see some. It's not absent. And we see some multi-drug resistance too. But for the most part, it's pretty small levels of resistance and pretty low. So it's kind of a good news story that the industry probably needs to trumpet to the public that we're being pretty prudent with our antimicrobial use for the most part. There are probably areas we could clean up. I'm not sure that every calf with diarrhea needs an antibiotic. Many of those are viral infections. So maybe there's some places there that we could fix. But for the most part, we don't use a lot of antimicrobials and we have relatively low levels of antimicrobial resistance in our herds if we're just going out and looking at, at that level. And we didn't have a we don't have a lot of data on antimicrobial resistance in cow calf herds. So that's kind of useful stuff when we can get that from herds across Canada. Is definitely a conversation that continues to come up, I think, more so with the public than necessarily with producers. So that's really good information, like you said, to share and kind of let consumers know that 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 is a fact. What economic analysis are being conducted as part of the Canadian Cow-Calf Surveillance Network? And why is this important to include in that? Well, for sure, that is super important to include, and this is probably where we need to get more done down the road. The trouble is it takes us a while to pull all our data together from the original project and, and get our graduate students through their projects and their theses published and into the literature, et cetera. So we're getting to that point now. But once that data is in the literature, then economists or other researchers who want to look at a particular economic question can get a pretty good idea about what's normal in Canadian cow-calf herds and, as we were talking about before, how it's distributed in terms of productivity or things like that. So now if somebody says, well, I want to, I want to look at the economic impact of moving from the 
bottom 25% to the top 25% in terms of productivity, they have some numbers to use to be able to do that. So some of that can be done on economic calculators that are available on different websites like BCRCs and other places like that. But some of that will probably get done by other researchers who are economists and far smarter than I am about doing those sort of things. We used a bit of those economics in our Yoni's disease modeling because we can say, hey, we know this much, this much testing costs this much and which, which testing program gives us the best bang for a dollar. It's Yoni's disease prevalence down the lowest through our computer modeling system. And this is what it's going to cost us per year to be able to do that. So we can start to give vets a much better idea of the economics of that disease control program uh, with the various options in it. And just out of curiosity, what is the cost of a Yoni's test? Do you know? Well, that's a good question off the top of my head. The fecal test costs in the neighborhood of 40 to $50. Okay. But you can pool that. So you don't have to pool it. You take individual samples from each cow and you got to be careful not to cross-contaminate. That's a huge issue. When you're taking fecal samples, you got to get a separate glove on every cow, etc. Then you send it to the lab and they'll pool it in groups of five or 10, I think. So as a result, if the pool tests negative, they're done. They don't retest anything. If the pool tests positive, then they have to go back to those ind individual samples and retest them to figure out which cow it was or which two cows were positive out of that pool. So that makes it a little bit cheaper because you can you might get a bunch of negative pools, and so you've just tested them once, and that's maybe five or six, seven dollars uh, an animal per pool. But if you have to retest a bunch, then it starts to add up. The blood test is quite a bit cheaper. I what you charge for collecting blood samples and all that sort of stuff. But the lab work itself, I think, is more in the neighborhood of $14 or $15 a sample. But as I said before, it's not as accurate and leaves more of those positive animals behind. So that's the sort of question we can explore with that computer model. We can say, well, could we use the blood sample? It's cheaper. Maybe it's cheaper, I guess, depending on what it costs to get blood samples. It's probably cheaper. But if I use this one, it costs me a bit more, but I get mm -hmm. a far better result maybe of, of getting rid of Yoni's disease. So those are the sort of questions we could try to answer with that. We've talked a little bit about computer modeling in some of the previous episodes. And to me, it's so interesting that there's modeling available to do some of those things now and, and just how far, I guess, the advancement is of technology to allow that to even be possible. Yeah, it's really, really amazing. And as part of Dr. Waldner's Yoni's use, she built this amazing computer model with help from people from computer science here at the university, et cetera. But what's even more amazing to me is they've been able to put it on the BCRC website with a front end that just about anybody can use. I can use it. There's a lot of math and computer logic behind that model, but a veterinarian could go to that website and look at that thing and plug the numbers in for their particular client and be able to come up with some answers for that without having any of the knowledge of that sort of stuff. So having the front end user friendly is really amazing. It is. And so you said it's available on the BCRC website? Yes. There's a Yoni's herd modeling 
thing that's available on the Beef Cattle Research Council website. You can go there and find that. Okay. I will add the link to that in the show notes. And then if there's listeners who are interested, they can get it from there. Is there a discussion of expanding the network? I know you said the project is finished. And if so, how could producers become involved if they were interested? Yes. So we are continuing on with a new five-year project that's just been funded again by the Beef Cattle Research Council and Saskatchewan Agriculture is involved again, giving us some funding. So the new project has a new name and it's a mouthful. It's called the Canadian Cow-Calf Health and Productivity Enhancement Network. And these fancy names get made up because granting agencies often like those sort of catchy titles. So C3H-PEN. C3H-PEN. Canadian Cow-Calf Health and Productivity Enhancement Network. So we're just getting started. We're at the recruitment stage and we're looking for cow-calf herds that might be interested in participating. The demands are not terribly high. You have to have at least 30 cows. So we want herds that are a minimum size of 30 cows. You have to have access and ability to use email, which I think that's the vast majority of the public these days. You have to have a relationship with your local veterinarian because we might be using them to collect some samples. And you have to keep just basic production records, like who calved and whose calf died and things like that. So very basic production record. It'll be a little bit similar to the previous rounds. We're going to ask to collect some of those productivity records. There'll be a survey every year or so that might take an hour or two to fill out. And we have an honorarium that we pay for producers that that participate and and do that work for us. It probably is is reasonable for what, what the work it involves. Jace Fawson, who was one of our graduate students on the last round, has been hired as our project coordinator. So he's the contact person. His phone number is 306-966-7870. Or you can email him at c3h.pen at usask.ca. So Jace can answer your questions. You don't have to commit when you phone them or email them, you can ask them questions about what's required and things like that. And I think in this round, we're looking for one of the big comparisons that we want to look at is early calving herds versus later calving herds, because I think that's an important differentiation. So we looked at a little bit of that in previous studies, but we think that's a really important issue because The herds that calve early have different health issues, they have different health concerns, they have different management concerns than herds that calve later, and and they're not the same. And so we're trying to sort out some of the differences in what our recommendations should be for those sort of two calving groups. So we are looking for herds. If you have listeners that are interested, please uh, give Jace a phone call or an email and let them know we'd be we'd be love to have you on this project i'll add his email and phone number into the show notes as well so listeners if you didn't catch them and you're interested please go there to find those why is all of this information important for producers to know and to have access to that's a good question and i think out of our very first cow calf surveillance network the western canadian one one of the big findings we got out of there was the importance of benchmarking. 
And that was through research from some of my colleagues here in the economics department, uh, agricultural economics department here at the U.S. And one of the things they showed in their study was that setting goals and record keeping can really help the productivity of your herd. They found that those producers that set goals and kept records achieved about 60 more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed to the bull for breeding. That's pretty significant these days at, at the prices we're seeing, right? The 60 yeah, more sure. pounds. So I think I think that's really the bottom line. And, and BCRC has really built up their extension work on record keeping. They have some really great resources there on that from everything from financial record keeping to health and productivity record keeping. Uh, they've got some great, great resources there. It's a really important part of that. It's probably one of the things we don't do very well in the cow-calf industry when we look at ourselves compared to the feedlot industry or the dairy industry. We're not the greatest record keepers sometimes. Some producers are amazing. Some producers are amazing. There's some great software programs out there. But there's other people that are still writing things down on a back of a cigarette box or on the wall of the barn or something like that. So, the wall of the barn is what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, there's a wide range and doesn't mean that you can't utilize the wall of the barn in different ways, but it's pretty important to figure that out. It's like, if you want to get better at golf, you better start keeping score. It's the same, same idea. When I was growing up, my dad had purebred shars and he still has some of the records written down, but they were in the garage, not in the barn, just on the wall. And it's funny now going back and looking at it because you remember some of those favorite cows and that was probably 15 or 20 years ago. So exactly. that part of that record keeping is kind of invaluable. permanent until his garage falls down. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's amazing. I think it is something that a lot of producers could do a better job on. And it's not the most fun thing. Most producers don't like keeping mm -hmm. records and it's not exciting. But if you're going to start making decisions about which heifers to keep and which genetic lines to sort of follow and things like that, you know, without records, just running them past the gate, that's got limited value, right? It, it's not useless, but it, it's not got as much value as being able to say, hey, this cow's given me a calf every year for the last six years. All her heifers have stayed in the herd. They're all productive, whatever. And I can tell that from my records. And a lot of producers, they're amazing. They, can, they know every cow and know what her life history in the back of their head. I'm not that good at that. I need records. So I think, I think it's an important part of just improving our herd and keeping track of things. And then if we get into things like disease issues and things like that, it really helps solving those problems. We can start to sort out which cows are, you know, is it the young cows affected? Is it the old cows affected? Is it the cows that capped in this pan versus that pan? Or, you know, are there trends that we can help to figure out to sort of maybe mitigate this and stop it in its tracks? So I think it's useful stuff. And as we move towards wrapping up, can you share how information will be shared for producers as well as the results of the study? And when do you expect this to be available? A lot of them are available already. So there's some BCRC fact sheets available on this project in particular on their website with the very basic information there. We've been publishing a bunch of the papers in the scientific literature, and some of those results will be 
transformed into various extension pieces and things like that down the road, speaking at conferences and meetings. Some of the stuff we've discussed on my podcast, the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition podcast, so you can go and listen to some specific episodes there that might be of interest. So we're sharing in a variety of ways. I write in Western Producer on a regular basis, so sometimes I write about these kind of things as well. So we're trying to make sure that the data doesn't sit on a shelf someplace and just gets that by other scientists, but it's getting out to the industry as well as in as many ways as we can. That's really important because I think there's, like you've said, there's so much valuable information in this that allowing producers to have access to it so they can make some of those management decisions and maybe move their herds forward is, is so important. What other projects are you currently involved with or have interest in? Well, I'm getting near the end of my career, probably Chantel. I got retirement in the headlights at least. And so as a result, I'm not leading this next project. Dr. Waldner is going to take over and be the coordinator. I was, and again, as before, I was just the coordinator last time. And, and I, we had so many other colleagues and people and, Dr. Waldner was already terribly important on that. So she will be leading the C3H PEN project going forward. It's all going to be involved. I've been doing some other work on, on copper and sulfates with Dr. Greg Penner in our animal science department. I'm still doing some disease investigation work, and we've got some neat uh, case studies coming out of that that we want to get published. And so I'm still trying to be active and still trying to do some stuff in the beef industry, but I'm kind of at that stage where I'm kind of going, well, I don't want to take a long-term project on because I'm not going to be here in five years to finish it off. So, so that's where I am right now. I'm still pretty active, but, but not being the leader necessarily in all, the, all those projects. And is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up today? No, I, I just like to thank if there's producers listening that were part of the previous projects, I just really like to thank them because we couldn't do it without their help and their participation, as well as the local veterinarians that help us collect samples. They're really the stars of, of getting these kind of things done because it's not easy to collect all that information. We don't have some computer software program where we can just mine it all from some other source and things like that uh, and in fact in the last few years we've done it by paper because that's what producers wanted to do so really really appreciate their help and just want to thank them for for helping us get this information uh, for the industry that we think is important so important and if uh, listeners want to get in contact with you is there somewhere that they can go to do so yeah, they can go to the University of Saskatchewan website and find me there. My email is john.campbell at usas.ca. They can come to my podcast, the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. They can find that wherever they get their podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and things like that. So number of ways they can get a hold of me. So welcome to reach out. I'm happy to chat with anybody about beef cows. Perfect. And I will make sure that all of those are included in the show notes as well. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking your time today to meet with me, to be on the podcast and to sit in the guest seat. I really appreciate it. And you've got so much great information that I think is important for producers to hear. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, Chantel. It was an experience to be on the other side of the coin. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.